This is Guilty Conscience. Casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Skadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts, Skadden Partners David Farhat and Nate Carter. How's it going all? Welcome back to Guilty Conscience. As usual, I'm joined by Nate Garden, Stefan Victor, and Amon Kyler. We have a great episode today. We're going to be joined by Lauren Pons, and I'll let her introduce herself and also tell us a bit about her podcast so you guys can take a listen to it as well. But I'm super excited to have uh, Lauren on today. Hopefully, she can come back and do a couple more episodes with us. So that being said, I'll throw it over to her to introduce herself. Thank you, David. Uh, that's a hard Hard intro to follow. I am a, a tax member at Miller & Chevalier. I focus my practice on international tax and tax policy. Before I joined Miller, I was a tax counsel for the majority staff of the Ways and Means Committee in the United States House of Representatives. So I worked on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the international provisions of that bill, which was enacted um, in late 2017. And before that, uh, in my prior life, I was a transfer pricing practitioner at EY's National Tax Office here in D.C., working largely on uh, controversy, transfer pricing controversy, APAs, and also restructurings and IP transactions. So that is my, my career in a nutshell. Uh, I'm sure I could, I could go on, but I'm going to stop there and let this podcast proceed. Also, oh. Speaking of podcasts, I do have my own. It's called Tax Break. It is available on Miller Chevalier's website and also on YouTube. So check it out when you have some time. Well, Lauren, thanks for coming. Thrilled you're here. As everybody knows, I am from Chicago. I am not a DC person. We have different ways of solving our interpersonal disputes in Chicago than how DC works. Uh, I'm not a, therefore a legislative person. I have, however, seen Schoolhouse Rock. I know how it's supposed <laughs> to work. And I, I got to say, I look at something like TCJA, it doesn't look like the happy little bill that comes out with a ribbon on it at the end of the episode. So what happens? Tell us about the tax legislative process. And I'm a little disappointed we're not allowed to sing the Schoolhouse Rock song. Well, you know. Copyright. Yeah, we can't. We cannot <laughs> afford that kind of rights payment. So let's not infringe anything. I'm, I'm not even going to try. We're just not a even small try. little podcast here on a, on a shoestring budget. Um, <laughs> so you know the the uh, the schoolhouse rock depiction of how a bill is passed is true. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your point of view tax legislation in the last uh, probably two decades, let's say, uh, roughly, has been through a process called reconciliation. I should say most major tax legislation has gone through a reconciliation process. And so that exercise is not bipartisan, but the general rule still applies. So all tax bills have to start in the House. That's that's in the Constitution, the origination, origination clause. And so if it's a reconciliation bill, that means that largely the Ways and Means and Senate Finance staffs of the party who is in charge will be responsible for 
putting together the contours of the bill. So that's what happened with the American Jobs Creation Act in 2004. That's what happened with ACA in 2010. That's what happened with TCJA in 2017. That is what Democrats hope to have happened with the Build Better, Build Back Better Act of 2021-2022, depending on how things go this year. Interesting. And so maybe <laughs> talk a little bit about, just for, for those like me who, who don't know all these, the reconciliation process also involves that, that magical black box that we call scoring. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between the reconciliation process and how bills get scored and the impact of that? Sure. So reconciliation bills are subject to um, some special rules. Bird rules, or, or you may hear reference to those. So one is that outside of the, the budget window, so in TCJA context, it was 10 years, there cannot be an increase to the deficit. So everything has to balance out so that when the when the budget window is over, there's no addition to the, the national debt. There are other rules around uh, reconciliation bills having to do with the substance of permit provisions that are included in the bill. So um, they have to be, there's a germaneness requirement. There are certain provisions that maybe have tax elements, but can't be included in, in a reconciliation bill. So uh, most often cited are um, social security taxes can't be touched in, in a rec- reconciliation bill. But everything else, almost everything else is, is pretty much fair game. So um, you will see in, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, all the provisions mostly relate to individual taxation or, or business, um, international and domestic. And um, that that is how it has to happen. And so when you talk about scoring, those numbers are extremely important because of the deficit rule. And so everything has to kind of balance out. And in TCJA, for example, there are provisions that sunset toward the end of the budget window. And that is to conform to the restrictions on on adding to the deficit. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. Build Back Better is a little bit different. They have the same considerations in terms of the deficit. But right now, the status is really on deciding what the spending provisions will be. And so, of course, the, the scope of the spending informs the scope of the tax revenue raisers that you need to cover the amounts of money that you want to spend. Um, and so if Build Back Better um, is to be revived in some new form and, you know, it has, as anticipated, a, a more limited scope of spending provisions than necessarily the amount of tax that would need to be raised to balance the bill overall would also shrink. And how is that impacted or how is the scoring impacted by, let's say, a technical corrections bill? In other words, does technical corrections on TCJA also have to get separate scoring, or is that a different process? Well, technical corrections are understood to generally not affect the score because they're effectuating the provision as it was meant to be effectuated in its original form. So, you know, in theory, technical corrections don't score anything. At this point, we know what the revenue outcomes of a lot of the TCJA provisions were as compared to what was projected. But I don't think that uh, that should have necessarily a bearing on whether or not those 
you know, the bill has passed. So what the re- revenue implications are of TCJA, they are what they are, but it passed and as passed, it balanced. And the same will be true for, for Build Back Better. Actually, this is something I very much wanted to ask you about. Do the scoring people get a report card? Does anybody ever say, hey, you know, you said this was going to raise X and the money never showed up? How does that work? No, <laughs> they don't get a report card. So JCT, Joint Committee on Taxation, is responsible for scoring um, legislative measures. And you might have also seen scores coming out of the Congressional Budget at Office for proposals. Um, but in terms of the bill going through the legislative process, Joint Committee's score is what controls. And they do they do a really good job. I don't, you know, they they work really hard and they were a great partner to have in, in the process. Really, really smart people, both economists, lawyers, and tax accountants who who are extremely bright um, and very, very technical. And it would be impossible to pass anything without them, especially, you know, from my point of view for for tax legislation. But yeah, once the bill goes and once it's enacted, you know, we can look back and say, oh, well, it didn't raise what we thought it was going to raise. And it's not, it's not a science, it's an art. And JCT, of course, has access to taxpayer data, but they're also trying to predict behavior, which, as we all know, is very difficult to do. Um, and so they're, they're trying to predict taxpayer behavior, not in isolation. So there is a provision, but they're looking at the bill or, or these provisions in in tandem with not only each other, but existing tax law. And so trying to think about how are these changes or these proposals going to impact behavior vis-a-vis what's in the bill itself and also uh, vis-a-vis what tax laws exist and aren't going to change. So it is not an easy task. (laughs) So on that, if you can give us a look into... um the influence from the, the the taxpayers industry as all of these things are coming down as you guys are asking for comments. Mm-hmm. Um, how some of that handled when you're going back and forth? So I can only speak for from experience for for TCJA, but we certainly invited taxpayers to come in and give us real world impacts of these proposals. And that started, you know, before we released the the bill in committee and went all the way up through until really almost the end of the entire process. And so taxpayer feedback is essential to kind of the process, I would say, because thinking about policy and how we think the rule should operate or will operate is very different when faced with taxpayer-specific fact patterns. And of course, we can't anticipate or envision all of the different fact patterns that might exist out in the world. And so it's very important to have that feedback that says, you know, you thought that this is a good a good metric or a good way to measure something. Well, in reality, it doesn't work. Or you think that the impact of this deduction is small when in fact it is quite large and here's why, you know, or if you change Mm -hmm. this limitation, here's the impact to our business. So all of these things are important. It's important to, you know, that is our legislative process in general, not just with tax. We hope for uh, those impacted by the rules that are under consideration to, we hope for their, their input and their, and their assistance in the drafting process. And I think honestly, you know, it's, a better 
result when we get that kind of input. And I know that during TCJA, there was a range of, there were a range of emotions. Like, you know, some taxpayers were just like, that's never going to happen. And so Mm -hmm. we heard a lot of feedback in January of 2018. But, you know, the bill passed in December of 2017. So I would encourage anyone who, when there's legislation on tap, whether you think it's going to pass or not, if you are adversely impacted by the provision to make your position known. It may not change the outcome, but, you know, at least you're participating in the process. The place you don't want to be is a bill is up for consideration. You know that. You don't give input because you think that it's going to, it's not going to pass or it won't affect you or you haven't really done the due diligence to figure out how it does affect you. And then it passes and then it's, it's much more impactful than, than you might have imagined. So I would encourage taxpayers to, to participate. And you talk about getting all the comments in January. And I, I, I must say I was amongst a lot of the folks <laughs> making some of those comments, whether they got to you or not, I don't know. But I think a lot of us understand the frustration from the advisor taxpayer community when these things happen. If you can pull the curtain back for us a little bit and share with us some of your frustrations, what frustrates people on the Hill or folks up there that are actually doing the drafting when we're, when we're looking at this thing. So you get this storm of we'll say complaints in, in January. What's some of how, what's some of what you're, 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 you're feeling or, or, or saying, because I can kind of hear a little bit from what you're saying, like, listen, you should have said, said something before you had a shot and didn't, but what are some of the frustrations there? Well, I'll start with what would be ideal uh, <laughs> instead of <laughs> what is not ideal. So what is ideal? I don't mind critical feedback. You know, we're not, I can only speak from my own experience. So I, it was, there was nothing personal about feedback. So don't be afraid to be intense with your criticism. Don't hold back. But at the same time, I'm for a solution. <laughs> so, you know, it's great if you want to come and, and complain for 30 minutes and, and, and tell the tax writer, you know, the staff, how how terrible their idea is and how it never is going to work. And here's why it's awful. And then wrap up and say, thank you. That's fine. But um, that's not really, <laughs> that's not something that they're going to really take away. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what, what, what do I do with that? I know you don't like the provision, but how would you make it better? I think avoiding uh, what I call chicken little prognostications, like the impact of this provision is going to bankrupt my company. Or, um, <laughs> you know, if this is passed, we're going to go out of business or, you know. That's really not helpful. It's much more helpful to say something like, the impact of this provision is material to our business. That gives me a sense of scope. Or here's where we were before this proposal and here's where we would be after. Here's the impact on our business. Here's the impact on our ability to hire folks, keep them employed, things like that. Um, so, you know, constructive feedback is what I'm, what I'm trying to convey here is, is most effective. So you're saying the email I wrote with all the cussing wasn't helpful? <laughs> straight, straight into the trash. <laughs> yeah, I, spam, spam filter. But the- for taxpayers, um, Lauren, once there is a proposal, ideally, what is the timeline to start the engagement process? It depends on on the process itself. So you know, TCJA 
A lot of criticism was that it happened very fast. I will say that a lot of the components no. of TCJA were <laughs> were prior prior provisions that had been vetted, like you know, Camp One and Two, Green Book proposals. I think, from an international tax perspective, the only thing that was brand new in TCJA was the beat. Everything else had been floated. I think one of the hard things for a lot of us is about TCJA was. It's really hard to rewrite, you know, essentially all the international provisions of the Internal Revenue Code in six weeks. My sympathies. Not an easy task. And and but I'm saying we didn't start from scratch. You, you, is my point. you didn't you didn't start from scratch. I think one of the things that I, I'm curious about from a feedback standpoint is how much do you hear from taxpayers, their representatives, whoever, interested parties about what I'll call the policy wisdom, right? If you do this, you will mm. cripple my company and destroy America versus, hey, you wrote this provision and now that I sit and look at it, I don't think it's trying to do what you want it to do. So why don't you say this instead? How does that piece of the feedback work? That works in the same way. And that's that's constructive feedback, right? So if you come in and you, you want to get to Romanet 3 with us, let's do it. I think that those are the fun meetings, the the really constructive meetings, the ones where we can say, okay, we see your point. This might not align with the policy or what the members hope to achieve, but we could also be of the view that actually your articulation of what you think our policy is, isn't quite right. Yeah. Uh, and maybe what you're proposing doesn't, doesn't effectuate the change in the way that we want it to be effectuated, or maybe it does. I mean, it's a conversation. It's not a one way, you know, here's what we think you did wrong. Here's our solution. And yeah. they just dis- disappear. You know, we do this work in, um, in consultation with JCT, with our counterparts at Senate finance, with folks at treasury. So it's not like a vacuum where it just kind of goes into the ways and means committee drawer. We, we never see it again. Um, of course, there are some ideological differences around the margins on, between Ways and Means and Finance. And you, you see that there was no beat in the Ways and Means bill. <laughs> but um, that's that's part of the process. <laughs> so I was going to ask about competing interests or competing comments. And I think you, you might have touched on this. So is it, how, how do you weigh competing interests? And how do you take the constructive comments and decide which direction to follow? Well, I mean, you know, I said this all the time on the Hill, we work for members, you know, it's not up to us what the policy is going to be. And so ultimately, the policy has to be reflective of what the members hope to achieve. So Ways and Means Committee, members of of each house, writ large, and and what the leadership hopes to effectuate through, through the changes to the code. So to the extent the constructive feedback, even if it's, you know, thoughtful and, and the points they make are correct, if it's not consistent with what the members hope to achieve, I would say that there's a very low likelihood of seeing it work its way into the bill. And what about those of us who felt the beat was a personal attack? Well, why would you feel like it was a personal attack, David? It how much, even how say much your time name. do we have? Just let it, let it all out. <laughs> know, Just, right? yeah. <laughs> this, can, this is a group therapy session. That, that's not why, <laughs> Stefan. That's not why. You know, it's only been, what, oh, four years? A little over four years. <laughs> so are you hoping for the shield instead? I'm going to pivot to build back better. Oh, 
What's the word? What's the what's the uh, uh, the old saying? The devil you know. The angel you don't. But I'll I'll leave that one at that. So I I hear a beat proponent. Yes. <laughs> that that will be that will be the day uh, when when we hear David advocate for the beat. Maybe one thing that that you could t- talk about before we switch over to Build Back Better and kind of how you're thinking about that is, can you put this into the overall political process for us? I mean, obviously, one of the things that is strange, right? At least at a, at the outset, is hey. TCJA, we got to do it really, really fast, right? As I've said before, the Constitution gives a party two years when they control both chambers and the White House to do what they want to do. That obviously is not practical, but just within the tax writing process, how does that broader political cycle play into it? Well, it certainly does compress the timetable, right? And so we see this every time there was a reconciliation bill. We know that midterms are coming up now for you know, later this year, later in 2022, which certainly is impacting uh, what people might view as the likelihood, unlikelihood of, of BBBA passing sometime this year. The conventional wisdom is you go in the year immediately following the changeover, right? So Ideally, it would have happened in 2021 because they have the whole year. Um, you also have budget constraints. So this is budget reconciliation. So right. after 930, the end of the fiscal year, it's impossible to pass a reconciliation bill. So in the second year that we're looking at midterms, you've got political calculations. Regardless of the party that's in charge, you have to be concerned with midterms. You also have a September 30 deadline because of the budget constraint. Closer you get to November less likely as the conventional wisdom goes, members will be to pass a tax bill depending on its contents and how it might be viewed by voters, right? So yeah. that is the that is the calculus. Um, and that is, as you know, a feature of our system. Like the two-year turnover <laughs> rule is not, yeah. not really going to change. And it's also conventional wisdom that the party that wins the presidential election will lose in the midterms um, two years later. It's just kind of yep. a natural, just the way it goes, um, at least in the House. Um, so. so then I guess one of the things I'm curious about, because you mentioned uh, the the 2004 Act, right? Uh, American Jobs Creation. And one of the things that I think is going to be an incredibly naive comment, uh, but intentionally so, is after all the battle of reconciliation happens and the people that are in the minority party are grouchy about the fact that this was done on a reconciliation basis, one could imagine uh, a mentality that says, okay, yeah, we lost that political fight, but fundamentally we want the law to work properly. And so let's do a technical corrections act. Didn't happen with Affordable Care Act didn't happen with TCJA. Has that changed or has there never been a a willingness on the part of everybody to just do a technical correction so that at least what passed works? I think that it has gotten um, more of a 
contentious prospect to think about passing technical corrections after a reconciliation bill for, for tax provisions. I remember earlier in my career, technical corrections were not necessarily controversial. Um, you know, and now I would say the substance of technical corrections is still not controversial. It's just the the process around them. And so to your point, the the non-controlling party might be a little grouchy. Um, and so that manifests in a refusal to go along on the um, technical corrections front sometimes. Um, that certainly happened after TCJA. If you'll bear with me to go on a bit of a tangent on something we talked about on we're an earlier episode. We're not getting rid of the beat. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to advocate that. I've got my t-shirts. I didn't wear it. We're good. We had a bit of a conversation before about how tax is now a bit of a political hot potato. It's on, it's on the news more, transfer pricing particularly. What are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about that as a practitioner? Um, just to kind of something we did that, was, that seemed to be so obscure before now being kind of front and center. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. It's, it's taken, you know, I can speak from my, my personal point of view, which is that I think international tax provisions particularly are probably what I view as they should be kind of non-controversial, right? Because I think both parties will agree on the basic tenets of international tax. How you effectuate those tenets, they may disagree. But overall, all politicians, both sides of the aisle, will advocate for things like American businesses being competitive overseas. Um, you know, we don't advocate for double taxation. <laughs> um, you know, things like that. Um, and so, you know, we don't... Uh, I, are, are we sure? Oh, given on given now. recent that's just, news, that's, she's just chumming the water now. That's not even fair. <laughs> Lauren and I have known each other for a long time. I doubt yeah. that was unintentional. So, you know, things like <laughs> things like these basic concepts. I don't think of them as controversial. I think people like to make TCJA political, but certainly the international provisions came from a variety mm -hmm. of places or had their genesis and thoughts that were put forth in Obama green books. I mentioned the camp one and two drafts. So those are examples of, if not bipartisan thought, two sides of the aisle putting together, putting forth ideas that were generally thought of as, as good ones. Um, you know, some kind of minimum tax, guilty, <laughs> things like that, you know, limiting interest expense uh, deductions. And these are also ideas that came out of OECD for BEPS 1.0. So, these are, I think, kind of generally agreed ideas, limiting base erosion, not loading <laughs> subsidiaries with, with interest expense and deducting it. These are, these are not foreign concepts, pun intended. Um, and they're not, I don't think that they're particularly um, controversial in, an, in isolation, but because the process is through reconciliation and has been for the last several years, that makes it political. And so everything becomes a, a political, politicized conversation. Well, without guilty, there'd be no guilty conscience. So we can't complain too much. But that's right. I am, am curious as to what do you think happens, maybe transitioning a little bit to build back better and asking you to dust off the crystal ball a little bit? <laughs> what and also maybe tell us what's the relationship between Build Back Better and some of the technical corrections that I think everybody recognizes 
would maybe make TCJ a slightly better crafted product? Well, I haven't revisited the the technical corrections draft from what, 2019 that uh, Ways and Means, my, my former committee, put out. I think that, well, let's let's go with BBBA for a minute. As I mentioned, you know, we all know the timeline is is pretty compressed. We're in a, we're in a midterm year. Here it is, already middle of February. Uh, we also know that Congress has some other things on its agenda besides tax, like I don't know appropriations. Um, there's a Supreme Court nominee to deliberate over. I read the other day. There's talk of. Um, addressing the Violence Against Women Act that expired a couple years ago. They just passed a bill to fund the post office. I mean, there are a lot of other things that are on Congress's agenda besides tax. Now, that being said, the Build Back Better Act has some spending provisions that are a very high priority to the current administration. So it's really, I think, a matter of them getting together and negotiating what this revised package looks like. And as far as I know, those conversations haven't gone very far. So I would say that right now we're in the same posture that we were in at the end of December 2021 when the when the bill collapsed at that time. But there's no, you know, there's no prohibition on them starting talks again and coming up with a slimmer package and passing it. They they still have control, they still have a little bit of time. But I do think as the year goes on and the legislative calendar gets eaten into by these other priorities, you know, of course, the prospects get dimmer and dimmer. So it's really, you know, it's up to up to the, the lawmakers to to get together and, and pull something together. Whether that happens before September 30, my crystal ball is currently out of commission. So I can't say. <laughs> it got it's it's tired. It's been working overtime. <laughs> Interesting. Suppose that nothing happens and putting sort of your current role uh, more to the front of the of the discussion and thinking about this, some of the things that the Treasury Department and OECD are trying to do with the pillars, you know, at, at the risk of asking mm-hmm. an overly controversial question, might seem to me that the Treasury Department was pretty far out over its skis uh, in terms of uh, where we are with respect to the pillars. What happens if Build Back Better doesn't get passed? Well, I think that we're going to have to start thinking about some other vehicles to look to to pass the changes for guilty that are going to be required for um, that regime to be deemed consistent with an income inclusion regime under, under Pillar 2. And when that happens, what that vehicle might be, anybody's guess. But I mean, it does have some really serious implications for what's happening on the OECD side. And I think as American tax practitioners talked a lot about guilty coexistence, and as long as we get this, everything will be good. But I think even with guilty coexistence, there are, based on the model rules that came out in last year, some new, novel, and complex issues that have been presented, even if we had guilty coexistence. So without guilty coexistence, I think all of those issues are exacerbated, obviously. Um, But even with guilty coexistence, we might have some issues. And that's another podcast, another at least hour of talking (laughs) about all of the intricacies of these rules. 
<laughs> You're always welcome back. You're always we welcome totally back do. to have but the I, conversation. I mean, honestly, I do think that we the guilty coexistence issue is not going to go away. Um, and we're going to have to figure out when we can legislate to get that, because without it, it's it's a really burdensome prospect for for U.S. multinationals to have to face. Right. I will note for those who are just listeners and not on video that Lauren gave me a very stern look that when she said, when <laughs> this happens, so it's going to happen. <laughs> when, I mean, when, yes, I, I do think it's a when, not if, if just when is the huge question. I don't know when it would be, but the need for guilty coexistence won't go away because we weren't able to to pass these, these conforming changes this year or last year. And Nate, without guilty, we could have been the beat goes on as well. Wow. But that for would have been a lot of trauma for me and exactly. show. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or or David on the beat. Oh yeah. <laughs> there you we go. Would have been a one person no guest podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot a lot of vitriol. Iman, you look like you've been trying to get in the game. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, I guess I will get in the game now. Lauren, what are some uh, tax, international tax reform proposals that you're excited about? And what are some that you're not so excited about? Oh, I wouldn't say I'm excited or not excited about any particular one. What I am excited about is that the conversation is continuing. Like this work is never done. And so it's always fun to look at what's on the table, figure out what these changes are vis-a-vis what is existing law, how will it impact you know my clients, the overall framework that we're trying to put into place with regard to our, our international tax system. Does this make sense? Is the system holding together? What's happening in the rest of the world? What are people doing? You know, folks are trying to move toward a, some kind of DST or delayed implementation of a DST while they wait for pillar two, pillar one to to come into being. This is all fun to me. I think it's really interesting to see how our rules work in isolation. And then, of course, since nobody is really operating in isolation, how our rules work in in tandem with what's going on in the rest of the world, what's happening with treaties, you know, what how might treaties evolve if, if this pillar work advances? What can we do? Like, what is what is uh, dispute resolution going to look like 20 years from now? So with every new proposal come new challenges and new things to think about and new ways of thinking, you know, changing our ideas about what we can all agree on in terms of international tax. What are the tenets that we're going to be all coalescing around in the 21st century? Because it's going to look different than what it looked like, you know, in 1900. See, Lauren, with a far more positive view on tax reform and things than Nate had when we asked Nate, him that question. Nate. Well, you know, I always say I have one yeah. I told I telling everybody, <laughs> listeners know I have one left in me. So let's make it let's make it a good one. Make a count. One tax one, one, like one, one tax reform. That's it. I was gonna say yeah one one more experience of living through tax reform and then then you're done. So does the OACD process count? Is this gonna be your last? No, nah, <laughs> it's no. Nah, I I sort of lump all okay, that good, together. Good. Thank you. It's a, it's gonna be <laughs> it all right. It will be all right. It's gonna. It will be. This is. I always say you know I like tax. I like what I do, obviously on its own. But I also say it's just money. Like it's not life or death. There you go. Nobody nobody's dying over here. It's tax. Um, so. 
It's good. Death and taxes, well, they mean, do go together. Yeah. Right? And that you can you can't escape either one. Yeah. Uh, right. Especially with two more tax reforms, then then death and taxes oh, will definitely go to better together for me. Uh, I know, right? The, you just have to not concurrent. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> what ask you about treaties? You just mentioned treaties. It feels to me like they don't get the the attention and coverage they deserve. And just to throw mm-hmm. out a a controversial statement. It feels to me like a lot of what we're doing now, particularly on the OECD front, is really a substitute for dissatisfaction with the treaty network. Agree, disagree? Can you expand on that? You know, it it seems to (laughs) me like we have a set of treaties that have evolved over time. We have provisions that prevent withholding, if you have a treaty partner on the other side, used to be the case that we said, hey, we entered into this treaty with this country because we're satisfied enough with their tax system that we don't feel like we have to withhold on our end. Now, roll the clock forward to pillar two. We don't like that anymore. You on the other side, you're not doing that. Uh, You're not doing what we think you should be doing. One solution would just be get rid of or renegotiate the treaty so we can withhold. And instead, what we've done is we've created a big multinational apparatus for what feels to me like we just don't like the treaties anymore. I think I see your point. I think that what we don't like might not be the treaties, but just the overall taxation mechanisms that countries use, not necessarily withholding, but you mm-hmm. know, the idea around the minimum tax is that companies, taxpayers can kind of pick and choose where they're going to be and manage their ETR by uh, incorporating some low tax jurisdictions into their structure. Whether or not we could we could ameliorate those perceived abuses through an expanded or, or strengthened treaty network, I'm not sure. But I, I think this is bigger than treaties in some ways. The OECD work is bigger than treaties because countries have decided that, you know, and it was kind of a slow march, right? Like, so maybe a decade ago, people were talking about stateless income. Mm -hmm. And then we got to BEPS 1.0. So tightening up rules about interest expense deduction or implementing CFC regimes or looking at hybrids or, you know, all kinds of things that we felt were ways of eroding a tax base or or artificially lowering your tax bill. That wasn't enough. So now we're going another step further and looking at a minimum tax. So if everybody has to pay at least something, then nobody's going to be getting away with these shenanigans. And if you still manage to do it, we're going to tap you up anyway. And then pillar one is looking at, you know, how and why is transfer pricing deficient in certain examples and what's this excess and how can we reallocate it? And those rules I don't think that's a failure of our treaty network so much as an evolution of the thinking that goes along with how to how to really capture what taxpayers are doing, where are they doing it, and how are they calculating the tax that's due in these jurisdictions where they operate and now where they penetrate the market without even being there. So is it just a natural evolution of the cat and mouse game, so to speak? I think so. I mean, you know, I feel like jurisdictions, certain jurisdictions feel like they're not they're just not able to keep up with innovation, with the change of business. Like that's not, I don't think of that as anybody's fault. You know, (laughs) the markets have changed. The way we do business has changed. 
economies around the world have changed. You know, we, we don't only make things anymore, like physical things. It's just not, it's not a reality. And so I think the work now is looking at ways to, to capture that, um, capture that change, that shift in, in how economies run, how they hum along based on uh, commercial activity. It's different. Uh, that's a great point because things changed very quickly because for yeah. a long time there were changes and in innovations, but it was generally the same. And I think since maybe the late 90s to now, technology kind of took over and all of that's very different. So I guess yeah. the tax system does have to evolve and very quickly. So this might be some of what we're some of what we're saying. No, that's a that's an yeah, excellent don't, point. Also, don't forget about COVID. <laughs> well, well, COVID yeah. just yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can that we? impacted you know revenue? Right, <laughs> no money was. Countries weren't weren't um, <laughs> getting as many tax receipts as they planned on because of a, a global pandemic. So that you know makes the need for for revenue more acute. But um, I think even without COVID, you know, we know without COVID we were heading in this direction because <laughs> right. the, the pillar one and two work started before COVID did. COVID was a bit of an accelerant, if nothing else, right? Yeah. No, but I'm watching the clock, and unfortunately, we're getting to the end of time. Which I have, I, I, I have one last question for Lauren. That's going to be please. I was going to say, do we have a last question, and then we can give it to Lauren for uh, for for some closing remarks? It's going to be totally totally unfair, and I remind everybody that you know when you're on guilty conscience, Lauren speaks solely for herself. <laughs> Listen to all this. Listen to the, you, the the discussion about technological change, et cetera. Is income tax worth it still? It's hard. It's complicated. Should Would revenue-based taxes or VATs just be a better way to tax businesses? Here you go. Nate, some of us have to work and, you know, <laughs> pay bills for a while. <laughs> I know. Are you yeah, that old? Like seriously? <laughs> and if so, one, how can I get that? One more reform. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that is the perennial favorite as a, a source of revenue that remains untapped in our, our lovely home country. But um, politically, I think it's 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 a, it's a hard hard um, obstacle to overcome. It's, there's just People always say that whenever there's a tax reform conversation, it's like, well, why don't we just institute a bet? And it's like, because the people who make the laws don't want one. That's Was that your best answer. impression of Nate? <laughs> <laughs> it was a composite of Nate and everyone else who asked the bad question. <laughs> Nate's like, thank you. <laughs> it, had, it had to be asked. Uh, no, it's it does. Fast. It does. It's legitimate question it really is a legitimate question and it's just we don't you know in the u.s for whatever reason vet is still not an attractive option that doesn't mean that it never will be but right now there's no no political appetite by those who are in office to to put one into place as far as i can tell i mean you see that there's a, a bill on the table with a bunch of tax reforms and there's no vet provision in it. exactly well, we could we could keep going for a long time. I, it's fascinating stuff. I just want to thank you for coming on. Indeed, I, always a pleasure to talk to you. Sure, thank you for having me. This was this was fun. 
please come back. I'm sure people will realize why I want to be you when I grow up once they listen to this. But any any final comments for us before we before I, we wrap? Um, I don't think so. I want to come back. I want to talk about OECD. I want to talk about the role of transfer pricing in this new new world. Where right, right, write this down so we can hold it. Um, and whatever else you guys want to talk about. But this was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And. Thanks all for listening. Hopefully you guys join us for another session. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com. 